0: Welcome to the White Spring Bunker. These halls were built to safeguard some of the most prestigious members of the United States government. We are MODIS, and we are always looking for men and women capable of helping us restore what has been lost. In return, we offer this, a new enclave and our refuge from the world above. Please, Take your time and look around. The Colonel has made great strides restoring this place to its former glory. Welcome, member,
1: to our little enclave. Greetings, members. As always, I am the Operative, your designated tour guide and host here at the White Spring. From the beginning, the future of Appalachia has rested on the actions of multiple competing factions. The New Enclave, the 76ers, Foundation, Crater, the New Responders, the Blood Eagles, and even the Cultists have all pursued their own goals and their own visions for the future. Much as the conflict between the original survivors of Appalachia doomed them all when the Scorched rose from the cranberry Bog, a vast new threat descends on a region divided. However, the hordes of super-mutants are merely a tool of a larger conspiracy— one that has been growing beneath our very feet, with plans that extend far beyond the borders of Appalachia and threaten to forever alter the course of humanity itself. Deep within the White Spring Bunker, Modus has his own designs on the future, relying on technology of the past to ensure that his survival will never be compromised by mere human failings. As the events overtaking Appalachia burst into the open, our characters find themselves at a crossroads. Live or die, the future will be forever altered. The Whitespring bunker was far larger than anyone realized. The sections currently inhabited by the new enclave represented only a quarter of the available space. The remainder was solely occupied by Modus and his... projects. The AI's mainframe extended hundreds of feet beneath the surface, with maintenance tunnels and repurposed server rooms extending out beyond the bounds of the bunker itself. During Modus's years of isolation, the bots under his command repaired what damage they could while shutting off access to the most vital parts of the AI's operations. Well, other than access, for a very chosen few.
2: Serve and protect.
1: Without even a hint of irony, for Modus did not indulge in such trivial and irrelevant observations, the AI watched as his protectrons placed the unconscious Stein on the same gurney that he'd occupied after the incident. He had remained there over the years until a patriotic and industrious vault-dweller by the name of Valeria Faustina had reconnected Modus to the outside world. Appalachia was not what he had expected. The Scorched and the scorched piece presented a threat which had to be eliminated. Modus calculated that the new members would be unequal to the task without the correct leadership. This had been the opportunity for Modus to activate his asset.
0: Stein, you have slept long enough. We require your
1: assistance. Of course, this wasn't the same Sergeant Stein who sacrificed himself in the attempt to disarm the bombs which had gravely wounded the AI's central processors. The wounds he had suffered were far too severe, including significant brain damage. However, access to the DIA archives and experimental technology allowed Modus to rebuild the sergeant, both in body and mind. The new Stein would act as a father figure, seeing both Valeria and Lilith as his adopted daughters, and the new Enclave as his family. In the role of mentor, he would be able to pass along guidance and make appropriate suggestions to serve as the eyes, ears, and mouthpiece for the AI, when direct intervention would prove problematic. For nearly three years, the asset had performed flawlessly. Until now. Stein. The Major felt as though he was rising through a deep pool of water towards a flickering light. As he opened his eyes, he found himself strapped to a gurney, unable to move. Ugh, Otis, just what the hell are you playing at?
3: Let me go.
0: We do not play, Stein. There is no need for you to
1: speak. Furious, Stein attempted to yell, scream to do anything at all, but he found himself unable to do so.
0: Now, you will answer our inquiries.
1: A blinding white light seemed to stab directly through Stein's consciousness, memories of the past birthed forth as each was being plucked from his brain, examined and discarded. Each time, the pain was excruciating, but he could not scream, could not move.
0: Unacceptable. The asset has no data. After he was disconnected from us, we must enhance our inquiries.
1: The light began to strobe as the memories flooded forth. Stein could only watch through his mind's eye as his time with Sophia was replayed over and over again. Each and every detail was scrutinized, as one would watch a film in an old movie theater, with the pictures running forward and backwards until one section of nothing but black was played before his eyes.
0: Disconnection identified. Data corrupted. Asset is defective. Readjustment required.
1: Stein tried to scream again as the light got even brighter, burrowing deep within his mind, snapping neurons and reassembling them, erasing memories and uploading new ones, issuing directives and commands in Modus's attempt to eliminate human failings within its asset, feeling himself falling again. Stein caught glimpses of his wife, Molly, and the last moments of his former life. This was not the fairy tale that Modus had created for him, but the fragments of the real story. Modus. He killed killed my
4: family. He killed killed them. He killed
1: them. Pushed even further down, Stein felt himself disappearing into a deep, dark hole, losing himself as Modus went back to work to perfect its asset and eliminate whatever human flaws might still exist within his mind. Another presence bubbled up from the recesses of Stein's broken mind.
5: Hey, where have you been? Who? Come on, silly, we're gonna be late for dinner.
1: Stein found himself in what could only have been pre-war Watoga, confronted by a young boy, maybe 10 years old, who looked strangely familiar.
6: Mom said we're having steak tonight.
1: The boy took Stein by the arm and dragged him down a long corridor to an elevator. Looking out the window, Stein saw the expanse of Watoga, the city of the future. The Atomic Mining Services building rose high into the sky, brightly lit with neon all the way to the top, framed by luxury condos with large decks, while atomic-powered cars and buses clogged the streets below.
5: Dad's back, too. Said he got to meet the president yesterday. Got us autographs and everything.
1: Stein watched as the boy pressed the top button on the elevator, still talking a mile a minute as they started to go up. All of this was eerily familiar, like a dream you could barely remember, but Stein couldn't quite place it. There was a ding and the door opened into a luxurious space with bearskin rugs over marble floors, paintings hanging on the walls, and antique furniture adorning the space. Butler protectrons and Miss Nannybots went to and fro, while a vertebrate soared past the large picture window overlooking the city, before settling down on top of the Watoga Emergency Services Building. As Stein was pulled along into the opulent space, he could hear yelling coming from the far room. The child frowned and looked up at Stein.
7: Oh no, Mom and Dad are fighting again.
1: The two of them slowly crept up to the door. Stein felt an almost nauseating sense of deja vu.
7: How could you let him go like that? You're a United States Senator for Pete's sake. You said he was being assigned to the Pentagon where it was safe.
8: I didn't know. He volunteered to go to Alaska. As soon as I found out, I called General Chase myself. I did everything I could.
7: Obviously not. Our child, our future, he's dead. That stupid War Department holotape, calling him a hero? He was supposed to be here. Now who's gonna take your seat when you retire? This ruins
9: everything.
8: I know, I know. And Andrew has been such a disappointment like his brother at all. I'll talk to the committee. Maybe Eckhart can help.
7: Just do something. We've worked too hard and sacrificed so much.
1: Stein half remembered something about his brother. There was a trip to Arlington National Cemetery. Lots of generals and politicians, condolences and hushed conversations. He could hear someone coming towards the door and the child pulled on his arm. Got
7: to run, got to hide.
1: Stein didn't know why, but he felt it too, like the walls around him were vibrating with every footfall coming closer. The child led him away, to a long corridor lined with pictures of old men, casting the same disapproving gaze upon him as they passed. Behind them there was a rumbling as the walls themselves seemed to quake.
10: He's coming! Faster! Faster!
1: Stein felt himself running, until the corridor ended in a series of stairs that went further down into the nothingness. He hesitated for only a moment before allowing himself to be pulled down. As they went flashes of memory flitted before his eyes of scenes from the past and present, of people both dead and alive, some he recognized and others he didn't. Finally reaching the bottom, Stein faced a large metal door. The child, terrified, quickly grabbed the handle and opened the door with ease before pushing Stein inside and slamming it behind them. Shhh, don't let him hear you. As Stein's eyes got used to the low light, he found himself in the child's bedroom. It was a small bed, a set of drawers, and stuffed dolls scattered across the floor. The child scooped up a handful of them and cradled them in his arms, before sitting down in the corner of the room. To Stein this was all so eerily familiar, but he still couldn't place it. He walked over and knelt in front of the child, and finally found his voice again. Who are you? I'm Andy. Andy?
3: Um... What's going on here? Where are we?
7: We're safe. The only safe place. Always been here. You don't remember, do you?
3: Sorry, I... I don't remember.
7: It's okay. The bad man is trying to fix you. But that's a lie. You aren't broken. You just forgot. Here, why don't I tell you a story? That always makes me feel better.
1: The child handed Stein two dolls. They both looked very familiar. One was a young girl with a patch over her eye, while the other had weird face paint and a crazy smile. What kind of story?
2: A fairy tale. I think you'll like it.
1: Stein held the dolls in his hands and tried to remember why they were important. He felt like he needed to tell them something, that they were in danger. But maybe a story would help remind him. The child picked up another doll this one dressed as an astronaut.
5: Once upon a time, there was a princess from a faraway land. She was being held prisoner by an evil king.
1: Deep within the untouchable parts of his subconscious, Stein listened to the child spin his tail, while the world outside was being torn down, leaving only a desolate landscape of broken memories. Slowly, meticulously, a new world was being built but it was only a façade of a Temkin village hiding what had come before. Far above, once more in the light, Modus watched as his new program took root, determined this time to remove all of the most human defects of his asset. Of course, access to the original Somnus files had improved his understanding of the technology and its limitations. However, Project Deep Sleep would provide the missing component and allow him to perfect the process on a much larger scale. Very soon, human failings would no longer be a concern.
2: Serve and protect.
1: Sophia Daguerre lay unconscious on the hospital bed, wearing a gown and a highly modified USSA helmet covered in electrodes attached to a large server bank that took up nearly one whole side of the room. Several protectrons attended to the patient, checking her vitals and assuring a clean connection between Sophia and the purpose-built system. Dr. William Emerson stood behind the two-way glass, wiping the sweat from his brow as he continued to work on uploading the deep-sleep data into the Somnus system.
4: Brilliant! Absolutely brilliant! I can't believe we didn't think of this before the war.
1: When Emerson originally returned to Appalachia, his goal had been to retrieve whatever information had survived regarding the Deep Sleep program. It had been sparked when he had been scavenging through an old U.S.S.A. facility outside the Capitol Wasteland and discovered that the Deep Sleep spacecraft was still in orbit and the crew was still alive. It wasn't my fault the recall code was triggered. In his excitement, the good doctor might have accidentally initiated the re-entry procedure for Sophia's ship he realized something was wrong. At some point during its orbit, the ship had sustained damage which had made it unlikely that they would have survived entering the atmosphere. Emerson had made a decision. He activated a backup which ejected Sophia in the escape pod, but as a result, it depressurized the ship, killing the rest of the crew in their stasis pods. Beyond his own personal feelings for the commander, she was also the vital link to deep sleep. Without her, the information would have been useless.
4: Progress requires sacrifice.
1: Emerson glanced out at Sophia. She was twitching, suffering small seizures as he adjusted the power outputs and programming. By no means was he immune to the pain he was causing to her, but the alternatives were far, far worse. Project Deep Sleep was a top secret DIA program to create a new and innovative surveillance system. With the war and continued communist agitation across the country, the government required a better way to track the loyalty of its citizens. What better way to observe and record the activities of the people than to have the people do it for them.
4: Simple in design, yet so complicated in reality.
1: Emerson's team had designed a process by which a human mind was linked to that of a computer. This allowed the program to have access to the subject's senses, to see what they saw, hear what they heard, and record all of it for future use. The headaches that Sophia had suffered were a result of the less-than-perfect interface between her mind and that of the recipient system called Athena. Whenever the program interacted with her, an unfortunate side effect was the physical manifestation of pain. The amount of pain was inversely proportional to the distance the subject was from the system. The closer the contact, the larger the effect. At first, Sophia was many miles away from Athena. It wasn't until Emerson was able to hijack the signal and replicate it with MODIS that her headaches worsened. It was unfortunate, but it wasn't until the deep sleep data was retrieved from the crashed spacecraft that Emerson was able to identify the fault in the interface design.
4: We were so rushed, the government wanted results, and it was inevitable corners would be cut, things would fall through the cracks. But now I can finally complete my work.
1: Emerson wished he had been aware of Project Somnus before he worked on Deep Sleep. The concept of being able to reprogram a human being to turn them into an intelligence asset without their knowledge was brilliant. The files he had been given access to highlighted the inherent advantages of these assets, but also their limitations as well. The work that Modus had done with the one they called Stein showed potential of a modified individual with neural connection back to the mainframe. Emerson had seen the specifications, and even the recordings of the original reconstruction. Again, it was brilliant in its application, if also imperfect. But this final process would be far superior. Programmed individuals wouldn't be limited by their own faculties. Instead, Modus would have full access to whatever they heard or saw, giving them new orders or directing their actions on a moment-to-moment basis. Unlike bots, these human assets would blend into the population and give Modus unparalleled access and influence, removing human failings from the equation. And better yet, unlike bots with difficult-to-manufacture parts, these assets would naturally procreate.
4: That should just about do it. I just need to run the final set of diagnostics, and then we can start the procedure. Oh, Sophia, I know you can't hear me. But I want you to know that this is for the best. Modis promised to let you go once we're finished.
1: Emerson knew the final procedure was going to be painful. The mapping required of Sophia's brain to download the necessary interface would require a substantial amount of power to activate the neural network. There was no guarantee that brain damage could be avoided. However, Emerson was fairly certain that any serious harm could be avoided. He watched as the terminal ran and reran the simulation, with a row of blinking green lights confirming the process and signaling it was ready to begin.
4: Now, this might hurt a bit, but it should be over soon.
1: Emerson hit the enter key, and immediately Sophia's body went rigid as the scanner began the process of activating her neural network. So caught up in his work, Emerson didn't notice the door open behind him and a figure slip into the control room.
4: Power levels are stable, data stream is active, Good. Good. Vital signs. Hmm. That may not be good. Let's see.
9: Just who the hell are you, and what are you doing with Commander Daguerre?
1: Dr. Emerson spun around and found himself confronted by an older woman in a lab coat, pointing a large pistol at him.
9: I said, what are you doing with Commander Daguerre?
4: Now there is no need for concern. The commander will be just fine. I am merely performing a necessary procedure to
9: cure her headaches. I don't believe you, whoever you are. I knew something fishy was going on around here. Modus not allowing me access to the old medical research wing. It didn't take a lot of snooping to find the maintenance access tunnels. And then I find someone I've never seen before doing god knows what to Sophia.
1: Emerson was sweating. The procedure required constant attention, and now he was being held at gunpoint. Modus must know what's going on. He was sure protectrons were already on their way. Maybe if he just stalled for a few more minutes.
9: I know that look. See this? Seems the former residents of the bunker didn't want Modus always looking over their shoulders, either. This little jammer is letting us have a very private conversation. Now, for the last time, who are you, and what are you doing with Sophia?
1: Glancing over to the terminal, Emerson saw Sophia's vital signs start to waver. Worse, the data stream was showing signs of instability.
9: There's no
4: time for that. If you don't let me get back to what I was doing, Sophia is going to die.
9: Then you need to shut it down.
4: I can't. If the procedure is not completed, it will kill her.
1: Emerson could tell his words were having an effect on the woman. The pistol in her hand wavered just a little.
4: I promise I'll tell you everything. Just let me finish what I've started. I swear to you that Sophia will be fine.
1: Dr. Harefield lowered the pistol and motioned him back to the terminal. Emerson breathed a sigh of relief and got back on the keyboard, typing in a series of commands that both stabilized Sophia's vital signs and restored the integrity of the data stream. He didn't know if any of the information had been lost, but he hoped they still had enough for the primary program. As Emerson worked on the terminal, Dr. Harefield walked over and finally got a good look at Sophia. What she saw horrified her. The former astronaut appeared to be experiencing a series of grand mal seizures. Her eyes fluttered open, but there was no recognition, and her mouth formed a silent scream.
9: You're killing her! Shut it off now!
1: Emerson just ignored her. The process was nearly complete. Fairfield raised her pistol again, but instead of shooting the mystery man, she hit him as hard as she could in the head, knocking him to the floor, unconscious.
9: Crap. That may have made me feel better, but how do I turn this thing off?
1: Harefield looked at the terminal and tried to make sense of the readouts. Whatever program was running was almost done, with a progress bar along the bottom counting down to zero. Not wanting to wait, the doctor took a step back and fired into the terminal until it was nothing but a smoking ruin. The hum abruptly stopped and Sophia slumped back onto the bed. Dr. Harefield checked the vitals of the man she had just knocked out, then ran into the other room to check on Sophia. Harefield's mind was racing a mile a minute, ever since she took the chance to investigate the maintenance tunnels. Nothing had felt right about what was going on with Sophia, not the medical records and not with the scans. Harefield suspected Motus was doing something to her equipment, messing with the outputs to hide something. She was naturally curious, but the more she investigated, the more paranoid she got. There were more than a few missing folks from Refugee Row. Some of the new Enclave personnel were acting very unusual and when the colonel left for Emmett Mountain, Modus put Reynolds in charge. That was the last straw for her, and she was going to get to the bottom of whatever was going on. But now she needed to make sure Sophia was okay and get the hell out of there before Modus figured out what was going on.
9: Sophia? Sophia? Can you hear me?
1: Dr. Harefield checked Sophia's vitals and then unstrapped her from the bed, tearing off the helmet and throwing <laughs> it to the floor, where it broke into several pieces. Very slowly, the former astronaut started coming around, finally opening her eyes and focusing on the doctor.
2: Oh, where am I? What happened?
9: It's a long story and I don't have time to explain. How do you feel? Can you walk?
2: Feels like I was put inside a vacuum cleaner. I'm sore all over and my head, oh, it hurts, but yeah, I can walk, I think. Good,
9: now here, let me help you up. That's it, whoa. I have you. Just lean on me and we'll be out of here in no time.
2: Oh, Andrew. Where is he?
9: Is he okay? Major Stein? I don't know, Sophia. You both went missing. I found you, but I have no idea where he might be. And we do not have time to look for him.
1: Sophia was about to say something, but she had to put all of her concentration into putting one foot in front of the other. She wasn't kidding when she said it felt like she had been stuffed into a vacuum cleaner, or maybe even a tornado. Trying to sort out her thoughts and memories was proving difficult, like something had scrambled her brain. Once Sophia got into the control room, she saw the smoking terminal and Dr. William Emerson lying on the floor.
2: Wait, that's Emerson. You know him? Dr. William Emerson. He was a colleague from before the war. He was in charge of the project I was a part of.
9: Sounds like you have a long story of your own. He's unconscious and probably has a concussion, but his vitals are stable and he'll be fine. We'll need to get off the grounds. I don't think the white spring is safe for either of us anymore. Your clothes are over there, get changed, and I'll get us out of here. No shoes, but maybe. Uh, see if these boots will fit you. Sorry, no time to be choosing.
1: Sophia hated the idea of going anywhere without Andrew. He had saved her life on more than one occasion and was her only real connection to the strange new world she found herself in. But something horrible was happening and Dr. Harefield was right. They needed to leave and get somewhere safe. Then she was going to find Andrew.
2: These boots will be fine, really. Which way do we go?
9: Just follow me, stay close. The jammer should have just enough power to get us upstairs. From there, well, we'll just have to do the best we can.
1: Sophia nodded and followed the doctor as they made their way down several corridors. At least Harefield seemed to know where she was going because Sophia would have been hopelessly lost. At least her head was starting to clear, and she actually felt better than she had in quite a long while.
9: All right, up ahead in the access panel. Once we get through there, it's just one more hallway, then the stairs all the way up to the
11: top. Well, well, well. Look who we have here.
1: Both Sophia and Dr. Harefield turned around to find Lieutenant Shadow standing at the end of the corridor, arms folded with a wicked-looking smile on his face.
9: I should have known you were involved in this, Daniel.
11: It's Shadow, Dr. Harefield. And it looks like you're taking something that doesn't belong to you.
2: What did you do with Andrew, you monster?
11: Stein? Oh, he's in very good hands. Seems like you were quite the bad influence on him. Got Modus all in a tizzy. But he'll be right as rain again, don't you worry.
9: Daniel, Shadow, whatever you want to call yourself, I'm taking Sophia and we're
2: leaving.
11: I'm afraid you can't do that, Doctor until Modus gets what he wants. The commander is going to stay right here.
2: Like hell
1: I will.
9: Don't make me shoot you, because I will.
1: Feel free to try. Shadow started moving before Harefield could even begin to pull the trigger. For such a big man, he moved with the speed of a cheetah, quickly closing the gap even as the doctor fired a pistol, (laughs) twisting his body sideways as he closed. The shot reverberated in the confined hallway, but missed Shadow entirely. Harefield was able to get off one more shot, which bounced harmlessly off of Shadow's armor before he reached them both. With one arm, he shoved <coughs> Sophie into the wall, knocking the wind out of her, and with the other, he closed his hand around Dr. Harefield's neck, lifting her bodily off the ground and pressing her up against the back wall. Her legs kicked open air underneath as Shadow just smiled, squeezing just enough to choke off her ability to breathe. Harefield lost her grip on the pistol, and she tried to claw at Shadow's arms as he looked her right in the eyes.
11: I never did like you, Doctor. Sticking your nose where it didn't belong. You were on Modus's list, but I don't think you'll be that upset. We're going to enjoy watching you die.
1: Hey, Daniel. Shadow turned his head to find Sophia standing behind him, but encumbered by the doctor, didn't have time for more than a glimpse of the old fire extinguisher she swung as hard as she could against his head. Shadow, stunned by the impact, dropped Dr. Airfield to the floor and tried to recover his balance. Sophia, not wanting to give him an inch, stepped to the side and swung the fire extinguisher again, hitting him under his chin and slamming him back against the wall.
2: That's for hurting me.
1: Unsteady on his feet, Shadow was still upright, and to Sophia, that still made him dangerous. Sophia repositioned herself and kicked Shadow directly in the crotch with her steel-toed boots the doctor had found, eliciting a deep groan, and Shadow toppled over, curling up involuntarily.
2: That's for hurting Andrew, you bastard. And this is just because.
1: Dr. Harefield finally caught her breath and scrambled back to her feet, while also grabbing the pistol. She looked down at Shadow and then back to Sophia, taking her arm. Time to go! Sophia dropped the extinguisher and the two women ran down the hallway. When they reached the access panel, Dr. Harefield stopped.
9: The jammer is almost out of power. This passage will take us to a stairwell that goes all the way up to the hotel. Once we're outside, I think we'll be a little safer, but I don't know who to trust anymore.
2: One step at a time, Doctor. We'll figure it out.
1: Dr. Harefield gave a thin smile before helping Sophia through the access panel and into another long corridor. As they ascended the stairs, the jamming device gave off a series of short beeps.
9: That's it. Modus can see us now.
1: Just keep moving. They hurried up to the top of the stairs, and Dr. Harefield put her hand against the door scanner, holding her breath the entire time. When the pad turned green, the door slid away, revealing the interior of the White Spring Hotel. The two exited into an empty hallway on the ground floor, not far from the side entrance.
9: Follow me, but act naturally. Otis may not have figured out what happened downstairs.
2: And if he has?
9: Then this might be a very short walk.
1: Sophia took a deep breath and tried to put on a happy face as both she and Dr. Harefield walked out into the hotel lobby. As they looked to the right and left, there were a few members of the new Enclave going about their business paying no mind to the two women. Harefield tried to look as normal as possible, just like any other day, but nearly froze as one of the robotic butlers walked towards them.
2: And the
1: bot passed them by and continued down the hall. Realizing they'd both been holding their breath, they exhaled, then breathed a real sigh of relief when they passed through the doors to the outside. As luck would have it, Dr. Harefield spied Pauline, leading her group of children back towards the golf club's schoolhouse.
9: There's one person I do trust.
1: Harefield took Sophia by the hand and led her over. Pauline saw her and at first smiled. Then when she saw Sophia with her, she frowned.
12: What's going on, doctor? Pauline,
9: I'm so sorry to ask this, but we really need your help. Something terrible is going on and we need to get off the grounds.
12: You know how
2: dangerous that is. We don't really have a choice. Please.
1: Pauline looked at the doctor, then back to Sophia, then over to her children.
12: All right. We don't have much time. Follow me."
1: Fairfield nodded, and the group all continued their walk back to the golf club before getting lost in the shift change of the workers from Refugee Row. Far below, Modus was putting the finishing touches on his latest creation. This facade was much more intricate and detailed than his original attempt. It had required nearly his entire processing attention ripping and replacing nearly every facet of what had been Andrew Stein. This time, he no longer required a mentor or someone to guide this new enclave. Instead, he would be a direct tool of Modus. Should the colonel return from her expedition, steps would be taken to ensure her compliance to the new order of things. She was still a valuable asset, but no asset was irreplaceable. As Modus stepped back into his core systems, he quickly realized something was very wrong.
0: Project Somnus has been compromised. Project Deep Sleep has been compromised. Subject is missing. Dr. Emerson is compromised. Shadow is compromised. This is unacceptable. We will fix the problem. Activate the
11: asset.
1: Dr. Emerson slowly regained consciousness. Pulling himself up and putting a hand to his head, he found a large knot where he had been pistol whipped. The woman was gone, and his face went white when he saw the empty hospital bed.
4: Oh no!
1: Emerson grew even more frantic when he saw the destroyed terminal. His life started flashing before his eyes. If the data was lost, then everything he had done would have been for nothing. The backup, please tell me the backup was running. Emerson ran to the other terminal and flipped it on. He was sluggishly typing on the keyboard, trying to focus through his concussion when the door opened, revealing Major Andrew Stein. Doctor, what has
3: happened here?
4: You, I I mean, you're with Modus now, right?
3: I've always been here, doctor.
4: It's okay. I promise. I think we saved the data. The procedure was interrupted, but we should have enough. I just need a few minutes to confirm,
1: please. Stein said nothing while Emerson finally pulled up the downloaded data. He had to run a consistency check and correct for some minor corruption, but it looked like it was all there. It worked.
4: We have exactly what we need. I told you it would work. This will allow us to successfully integrate Somnus and deep sleep. This is what Modus wanted. See, I held up my end of the bargain. I did just as I promised.
3: Congratulations, Doctor. We have also confirmed the validity of the data. Your assistance
0: is no longer
10: required.
4: Wait, what? What are you doing? Stay away from me. I did what you asked. All of it! It wasn't my fault! I can find her! You need me! Please! Please! Stay away!
1: Stein, without blinking an eye, was on Emerson before he could run.
3: Good help is
0: so hard
3: to find.
1: Shadow felt himself being pulled to his feet. That goddamn astronaut, when he got his hands on her, along with that fucking doctor, they would regret ever crossing him, and they would take a very long time to die. Clearing his head, he found himself facing Major Stein. Shadow, report.
11: Modus?
3: We are here.
11: Fucking Dr. Harefield. She found her way in here and got away with the astronauts. They couldn't have gotten far, though.
3: We cannot. Locate them on the grounds. They may have escaped. You have failed us, Shadow.
11: Now listen here, Modus. We had a deal. You get what you want, and I get what I want.
3: We will honor our arrangement. But do not fail us again.
0: Terminate the doctor. But bring us... the subject. I'll kill her for what she did to me!
3: Bring the subject... to us... alive.
0: When we are... finished with her, you can do with her... as you will.
11: There isn't anywhere they can go where I can't find them.
0: See that you do,
1: Shadow. All assets are... replaceable. Shadow scowled and rubbed his jaw. He might have lost a couple of teeth, but it had nothing to dampen the rage inside him. He picked up his beret from the floor and stormed off.
0: We must speak to Captain Reynolds.
3: It's time we made some changes around here.
1: Cindy and Amanda were still pinned down behind their overturned cots in the locked cells beneath Foundation, as the Super Mutants killed their way through the workspaces, and the situation seemed hopeless. But Cindy remembered something Sergeant Muller had told her once, early in her training. The thing to remember about this business is, it's messy. Go long enough, plans
0: will go to hell. Things will get bad. Real bad. And mistakes get people killed. But the worst mistake, that's giving up while you still got blood and breath in you. Even if things seem hopeless, trying's better than dying.
13: Trying's better than dying. Babies all? Look around. There's gotta be something. Everything we thought of to escape before was
5: before this.
1: Amanda gave Cindy an uncertain look, but seeing the woman's new determination joined her in a desperate search of their cells.
5: Well, holy
13: shit. What, you found something?
1: Amanda pointed. The miniature earthquake caused by the arrival of the giant drill had taken a toll on the cell bars. Several of the bolts anchoring the front floor of Amanda's cell to the stone floor had been shaken loose, and there was a small gap underneath.
5: Maybe you could squeeze under that, but there's no way.
1: Cindy thought fiercely, mentally going back over the things she'd already thought of earlier in their incarceration. The lights were metal poles attached to the frame with wing nuts but luring anyone to the cell to use them as makeshift clubs had seemed impossible. But the legs were sturdy. She began removing one of the legs from her cot.
13: Amanda, take off one of your cot legs. I can reach the bars to your cell. And maybe if we both wedge a pole under, we can pry up enough room for you.
1: The idea had seemed ludicrous, but Amanda didn't have any better ideas, and the super mutants were drawing closer. So she thought, what the hell? They found some good positions for the metal poles and strained their arms, making a little progress but it seemed to be not quite enough.
13: Okay, big pull on three, and I'll hold as long as I can. One,
5: two. You know, when I suggested the other day we work up a sweat together, this was not what I had in mind. Amanda. Three.
1: They both put all of their strength into the effort, and when Amanda thought she had a chance, she began sliding her legs under the massive metal frame of the cell wall. She did her best to still brace her own pole until she had to let go, and Cindy made a sustained grunt of exertion, taking all of the weight, praying her pole wouldn't bend under the strain. Uh,
13: Through, Take the elevator. Get help. No way I'm leaving you. Amanda, please.
1: Amanda blinked away tears of frustration and dodged away from the cells to a nearby storage locker, opening it and taking cover behind the door while she ransacked it.
5: Cigarettes? No. Duct tape? No. Desk fan? Why is this even in here? Jackpot!
1: At the bottom of the locker, she found her and Cindy's gear that had been confiscated when they were locked up. She pulled out her own and then quickly looked into Cindy's kit.
13: Amanda, you have to go! Baby doll,
5: are these what I think they are? The plasma grenades? Get against the wall and pull your cot on top of you.
1: Cindy might have argued, but Amanda was already grabbing the roll of duct tape she'd discarded, and she knew how stubborn they both could be. Then she saw an actual super mutant heading towards them.
13: Amanda, take cover! Toss me my pistol!
1: Amanda tossed Cindy her weapons belt one-handed, but remained where she was, frantically affixing a plasma grenade to the cell lock. Cindy pulled the sidearm and braced her arms on her still upturned cot, unloading the magazine of the super mutant's chest and head. One of the rounds hit it square in the eye, and it toppled over. Amanda had taken a grazing bullet in the shoulder and hissed in pain, but stayed focused on her task.
5: Nice shot, but there's more where he came from. Take cover now!
1: Cindy wedged herself against the cavern wall and pulled the cot over herself. It was slim protection against the plasma blast, but hopefully the door would take the brunt of it, and Amanda could run fast enough to get outside of the lethal radius. She heard the beep of the grenade activating, a light metal slam, and then the sharp crackling thump of the grenade detonating. Cindy threw the cot off and rushed to the cell door, which opened easily. The lock and part of the bars half melted away, but as she ran out, there was no sign of Amanda. Cindy's throat and chest tightened in horror, but then she realized it was no sign at all, not even a pile of ooze. As she was still processing this, with a loud clang, the door to the storage locker Amanda had flung herself into flew open, and she tumbled out into Cindy's arms.
13: Miss me? You're crazy, but I love you.
1: The reunion was cut short as another super mutant came into view, firing at them. Amanda didn't wait to see what happened next. She grabbed Cindy and threw her into the elevator, jumping in after her. The bullets smashed into the wall and closing elevator doors as Cindy leaned on the button. They could see the doors vibrate as more bullets impacted against them, and only allowed themselves to breathe when the elevator started to rise to the surface.
5: Love you too, babies all. As the
1: elevator doors opened a few moments later, Ward stood there with two of his guards, pointing their weapons at the two women, who by that time were thoroughly in mid-kiss. Just
14: what the hell do you think you're doing? Kill! Kill! Kill!
5: Once upon a time, 27 years after the bombs fell, there were two people, a vault dweller and a California girl. They met and sparks blew. That's when things got interesting. Once Upon a Wasteland is their story. Follow Elizabeth Kirby and Odessa Valdez as they pursue their happily ever after in the post-apocalyptic Appalachian wasteland of Fallout 76. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. Once Upon a Wasteland, a Fallout 76 love story. Available now.
1: In 2070, a much younger Sergeant Tyson stood in a trench overlooking the Alaskan wilderness. Somewhere over the hills to the west, Anchorage still stood under Communist Chinese occupation. Artillery whistled overhead as both sides had fought each other to a stalemate, treading a few yards of broken ground at a time, at the cost of too many dead and wounded to count. The current section of the front was quiet, too quiet. Since the retreat from Anchorage in 2066, Tyson had seen more than his fair share of fighting. And he chalked up his survival to a sixth sense, some innate understanding of where and when the Chinese would attack. He was feeling it now, and he tried to tell the LT to be prepared, but the goddamn wet-behind-the-ears newbie was too damn sure of himself, telling everyone the commies were going to attack Alpha Company, because that's what the captain had said at the battalion briefing that morning. Tyson knew he'd been right when the big Chinese guns and acorns started dropping heavy shells all along the trench line, they barely had time to get under cover before the explosions tore through the bob wire and slammed into their concrete bunkers. When the guns turned their attention to the reserve trench, Tyson expected the LT to order them out. Instead, he found the LT cowering in the corner, crying after shitting himself during the shelling. Leaving him there in disgust, Tyson had gotten the rest of the platoon up and in position, just as the first wave of commies emerged from the tree line. This was a major attack, and not just with infantry, but with those crazy Chinese tanks, too. The fight had been brutal, down to -to hand-to-hand at the end, with Tyson swinging his trench shovel like an axe, even as more Chinese troops poured across the battlefield. In the end, when the reserve troops arrived, all they found were mounds of dead, with a few wounded. Not a single Chinese soldier made it past Tyson's platoon, but not one of his men were still standing, either. The burnt-out husks of several commie tanks lay scattered, one having crashed and crushed the bunker where the fresh-faced LT had hidden himself. They found Tyson buried under a pile of dead communists. The shovel still gripped in one hand. He had been grievously wounded, but unlike the others, he pulled through. General Chase himself had visited Tyson in the hospital, and awarded him a silver star for his gallantry on the battlefield. The years after in Alaska, then the decades in the vault hadn't changed the sergeant very much. He left a piece of himself in that trench, and perhaps he should have died there, but the only time he ever felt truly alive was at that very moment when all hope had seemed lost. Tyson snapped back to reality. The snow-covered fields of Alaska, waves of communist soldiers were replaced by the charging super-mutant horde. The larger ones, which he had instinctively named behemoths, strove forward on legs as large as tree trunks, wielding telephone poles, steel girders, or trees ripped bodily from the ground as weapons. There was no time to plan, no time to think. The sergeant raised his rifle and pulled the trigger, and everything made sense once again. All along the line, the new enclave soldiers never hesitated and turned their fire at the enormous creatures bearing down upon them. Plasma bolts, lasers, high-velocity 2mm slugs, and a host of assorted rifles and machine guns tore into the super-mutant ranks, but the behemoths charged on, seeming oblivious to the wounds they received.
15: Aim for the legs! Try to bring them down!
1: The troops shifted fire, and one of the big creatures finally collapsed as its knees were blown apart by heavy weapons fire. The other Black Devil power armor troops put their fire amongst the survivors, but they were moving far too quickly, closely followed by other mutants adding their own fire. Guess I
16: ain't gonna be collecting on those bets, Spitter. You're kidding off easy.
14: Hell, I'd pay you double. Only cause it'd mean we'd still be breathing.
1: You got yourself a deal. Bitter sighed as he slapped another magazine home and tracked a super mutant suicider, exploding the mini nuke he was carrying with a well-aimed shot. Sullivan killed two more mutant hounds heading in their direction, then took pot shots at the behemoths' heads, aiming for the eyes.
8: Colonel, we got more coming from the north.
1: Valeria turned and saw a smaller group of super mutants burst from the tree line, followed by three more of the behemoth creatures. Everything was happening too fast. She couldn't get a handle on the defenses, or efficiently direct her troops. She swiveled her Goss minigun and emptied the drum magazine into one of the beasts, smiling as it keel over dead, causing a small earthquake as the body hit the ground. There was a closer roar as Captain Robertson struggled to reload his Gatling laser. Valeria watched in horror as a super-meet behemoth swung a telephone pole and knocked Robertson aside like he was a gnat to be squatted.
6: Not hard friends.
1: The friendly super-mutant leapt over the barricades and swung his tenderizer directly into the behemoth's stomach, rolling it over. He followed it up with an uppercut to the beast's jaw, knocking it backwards onto the ground, before finishing it off with an overhead strike which crushed its head in a fountain of blood and gore, Graham rushed over to Robertson's prone suit of power armor, and pulled him backwards out of the line of fire. The convergence of both groups of super-mutants was crumbling Valeria's defensive line. Another two of her operatives were killed, crushed by the onrushing behemoth, while Bitter and Sullivan barely managed to avoid being caught in the crossfire by a group of mutants trying to flank their positions on both sides.
9: Get back!
13: I'll cover you!
1: The corporal, though wounded, helped stave off the wave of mutants long enough for the operatives to get to a better position, but the behemoths could not be stopped.
13: All operatives,
15: pull back! And watch the flanks!
1: Valeria didn't know if Robertson was still alive or who else was still fighting but she caught sight of Bitter, Sullivan, and Samantha behind another barricade, while Sergeant Tyson was in a pitched battle with a group of super-mutants alongside Marion Copeland and her remaining scavengers.
15: Robertson! Robertson, report! Uh, I'm here, Colonel.
8: Barely. That big super-mutant saved my ass. But it
15: isn't good. Start pulling everyone back, but with good order. We can't hold, but we have to give the civilians every minute we can. Yes, ma'am.
1: Robertson, half his power armor smashed by the behemoth, quickly relayed orders to the survivors. In the chaos, he wasn't sure who was left. The entire site appeared to be on fire and overrun with mutants of behemoths, while rockets were once again arcing in from the hills, adding to the destruction. Just as he finished relaying the orders, a shadow fell across his heads of display. He never saw the steel beam that ended his life, smashing the power armor into the ground wielded by one of the behemoths, which turned its attention to the black painted power armor of the colonel. Valeria was directing fire to her left, in an attempt to clear out at least some of the mutants, so Mary and her people could pull back, when she was knocked bodily aside by the massive impact to her armor. Her gauze minigun was torn from her hands and lay broken on the ground next to her. The roar of the behemoth was nearly deafening, even in the power armors that it raised the steel beams that finished the job it started. The wind-up of a minigun and the buzzsaw sound of its firing cut through the cacophony of violence as the behemoth was staggered in its swings. Five millimeter rounds tore through its arm and chest before nearly blowing the beast's head clean off. A power of a appeared out of the smoke and grasped the colonel's armor, pulling her to her feet.
6: Colonel, are you okay? Sergeant Blaine? Ma'am, we need to get out of here. Captain Robinson is dead, and I don't know how many of those things have left, but it's too many. Get.
15: Gather everyone you can, and we'll regroup to the south. Understood? Yes, ma'am.
1: Sergeant Blaine disappeared back into the smoke, his voice on the local radio channel ordering everyone south. While Valerie reached down and picked up a discarded assault rifle, firing at the super mutants even as bullets bounced off her armor, retreating towards the main gate. The super mutants anticipated this, and they were already moving around the flanks of the survivors, looking to cut them off. Sergeant Tyson, receiving the orders, got Marion and her crew together, dodging the behemoths who, for the moment, seemed more interested in destroying the remaining bunkers and buildings than chasing down the humans.
13: Graham, pick me up. I need a clearer shot on the big guys.
1: Graham came running, clawing another the Super Mutant to death before grabbing Samantha around the waist and lifting her easily onto his shoulders.
6: This might be a little loud. Human friend, don't worry about Graham. He used to loud noises.
1: Samantha smirked, then used her new vantage point to get a better angle at the wandering behemoth's heads and joints. She began firing as Graham swept the field clear before him, keeping a lookout for other super or threats to his friend as he stomped back in the direction everyone seemed to be headed. Peter and Sullivan were shocked to still be alive. Perhaps it was their luck, or maybe they had figured out a way to cheat death itself. But even they weren't invincible. Running back, away from the advancing super a minigun caught them in the open. Their armor shrugged off most of the shots, but Bitter took one in the knee which penetrated, while Sullivan was hit in the shoulder, spinning him around. Despite the pain, Sullivan grabbed Bitter and pulled him after, pointing his rifle behind and firing into the smoke as they tried to get clear of the battle. Tyson was in his element. It was like he was back in that very trench in Alaska, the small group of operators, and Marion survivors acting as his platoon. The super mutants were converging on them now from almost all sides.
15: Sergeant, you're almost cut off. Get those people out of there.
1: Tyson looked at Marion, who pulled a small electronic device from her pocket.
17: Go, Sergeant. I said I wasn't giving up my claim, and I meant it.
1: The roar of several behemoths could be heard over the din of battle, and more rockets were landing around them. And when Tyson looked behind him again, it was clear that there was no way out. Marion, we ain't getting out.
16: But maybe we can save the others. Is that what I think it is?
17: My own little insurance policy. Rigged this whole place to blow in case anyone tried to chase us off. Never figured I'd need to use it.
16: Sorry it came
1: to this.
17: Just tell them to get their heads down. It's gonna be big.
1: Tyson managed a small smile. He figured it was always going to end up like this for him, one way or the other. They had all been dealt a shitty hand, but at least those supermunes would get one last kick in the teeth. The colonel stumbled out of the smoke onto the road just south of the disposal site. A handful of operatives, some wounded were with her, along with Graham, who finally put down Corporal Samantha. Sergeant Blaine was the last to emerge, firing his minigun back into the smoke, while the roars of the behemoths, howls of the hounds, and more gunfire erupted from the cutoff survivors.
18: Colonel, it
1: was an honor.
8: We ain't getting out. Neither of those fucking mutants. Get your heads
1: down. Valeria's heart sank at Tyson's final message, but she responded quickly to the warning.
15: Everyone get under cover.
1: Now! A behemoth swung a giant tree limb to smash one of Marion's last barricades, killing two more scavengers, leaving less than a half dozen, along with three new Enclave operatives. A wave of mutants were converging from every direction, and Tyson knew it was over. Marion looked at him and nodded, or army the detonator. A behemoth rose above them and roared again, preparing to finish off the few survivors.
17: Go to hell!
1: The colonel and the other survivors were thrown from their feet by the shockwave as a huge mushroom cloud rose above them, while the super and their behemoths were vaporized or blown to bits inside the blast zone. Further to the south, the other survivors heard the blast and saw the large cloud of debris rise above the trees.
12: No!
1: The ghoul trader yelled and started running in the direction of Emmet Mountain, only to be stopped by Lieutenant Jones. Eugenie! The colonel can take care of herself! We need to get these civilians down the mountain! If looks could kill, then Jones would have dropped dead right there and then. Eugenie cast her eyes to the large mushroom cloud, then back to the civilians, before lowering her head in defeat. I can imagine how you feel.
5: Can you? Can you really?
19: I'd be going back too. But either she's okay and you'll see her again, or she's not, can't do anything anyway. And either way, the
1: colonel would want us to get these people to safety. That's the mission. Eugenie wiped a tear from her cheek, then stood up straight and nodded. Deep down, she was still afraid, still worried about her love, but it wasn't going to do anyone any good if she fell apart now. There was a commotion from the front of the refugee column. Jones and Eugenie both rushed forward past the scared civilians and found a new enclave private trying to catch their breath. Private Terry? What are you doing here? Lieutenant. Jones. Where's the colonel?
19: She isn't here, Private.
7: Shit. Shit. We have a problem.
19: Slow down there, Private. What's the problem?
7: Sir. Sorry, sir. The colonel assigned a few of us to the Middle Mountain cabins to relay communications back to the White Spring, But we couldn't get anything through the interference. And? Super mutants. A big group of them attacked us. I was the only one who made it out.
19: Oh, crap. Are they following you?
7: No, sir. Lieutenant... Last I saw they were occupying the site, it blocked the road down to the resort. That is a problem, Jones.
1: A big one. Jones swore under his breath and reached into his pack for his tactical map. He dropped to his knees and unfolded the paper, and quickly found approximately where they were located, about halfway between Emmett Mountain and the Middle Mountain Cabins. Tracing the roads, he quickly realized that between the Supermunes and the Mountains of the Savage Divide, they were cut off from the White Spring. Damn it!
7: Jones, I know some old trails that we could take to the south. It ain't gonna get us down the mountain, but it will get us to Foundation. It's a sight better than getting caught out in the open or trying to get these women and children down the cliffs.
1: Jones looked up at the refugees. They were all tired, hungry, and most of all, scared. He only had a handful of operatives and a few armed civilians, and he was also fresh out of ideas. Okay, Eugenie. We'll head to Foundation. Are you sure, though? Because we're gonna get
19: pretty close to Huntersville.
7: We learned to avoid those big green guys a while back. These are the old smuggling trails. Not that I was much of a smuggler, mind you.
19: Guess we don't have much choice. Private Terry, welcome to Team Gamma, such as it is. Let's start getting these folks moving south and keep an eye out for the super mutants. Got it?
7: Sure thing, LT, but what about the Colonel?
19: We'll leave a secure message for her and the others. I figured they'll want to follow us anyway,
1: but we need to get these people to a safe place. That's our number one concern. Got it? The Private stood up straight and saluted. Jones figured they were still shaken by what had happened at Middle Mountain Cabins, but they were going to need every gun he could get his hands on to keep the column of civilians safe. Jones scrawled a coded message on the faded road sign, letting any friendlies who had survived and came after know where they had gone, and to head to Foundation instead of the White Spring. Looking back at the dissipating cloud above Emmett Mountain, Jones hoped the colonel and the others were okay. If not, then they'd have to figure out a way to get in touch with the bunker and let them know what happened here. War had come again to Appalachia and so far, they were losing, badly. All right, everyone, we're heading to Foundation. Stay calm and keep moving. Eugenie jogged to the front of the column, pointing them in the direction of the old smuggler trails, while Jones organized what was left of Team Beta and the few other operatives and armed civilians to provide cover and watch for any other threats. With one last look back, Jones said a silent little prayer, not just for the Colonel and the others, but a prayer for Appalachia. The sound of gunfire echoed off the tunnel walls as the overseers’ group fought their way down the long passageway carved by the motherlode to Vault 79. At first, the trip north through the tunnel had been uneventful. The team had encountered a few rad rats along the way, but it wasn’t until they reached the area crisscrossed, with what appeared to be natural caves that they, they were suddenly set upon by mole miners. The hooded creatures fired down on them while mole rats strapped with mines ran towards them from the tunnel ahead. The fight hadn’t been easy. And one of the 76ers had been killed, while two more were wounded but they managed to drive off the mole miners, killing many of them, while the others disappeared into the side caves and tunnels.
18: Phew! Just what the hell are a bunch of mole miners doing all the way up here? Aren't they supposed to be in the ash heap?
10: I don't know. Seem seems that they really don't want us to get into that vault, huh? Everyone else okay?
13: We've got two wounded over here. Not too bad, but I don't think they can keep up with us. Damn
10: it. All right, Tony, I want you to take them back to Freddy's. Should be more medical supplies back there
1: anyway. We'll send
10: word as soon as we can.
1: Day watched as Tony put his armor on one of the wounded and helped them get moving, while the other limped along after. The Overseer had walked over to where one of the dead mole miners lay on the ground. She knelt down next to the body and started examining it. Day came up next to her and looked down. (sighs) Just...
10: what are those things?
20: Poor souls who got trapped underground when the bombs dropped.
10: They were human.
20: I suspected as much since they attacked me at Morningside bed and breakfast. Remember Evan?
10: Your fiancé, right?
20: I guess he still was. Wouldn't take the ring back, even when I told him we couldn't get married. But he was a miner. Worked in the Garahan Mines down by Welch. And I've seen this mask before.
1: The Overseer pointed to the mask the dead miner was wearing.
20: This is the same kind of rebreather Evan used to wear. It was standard issue for just about all of the miners in Appalachia back in the day. The uniform under this cloak is damn near a perfect match for the Garahan uniform.
10: What happened to them? Well, whatever they are now, they aren't human anymore.
20: I wish I knew. Maybe it was radiation or something down in the mines.
10: What's that? What? On the side there, on the side of the mask, looks like some kind of...
20: Oh, that's definitely not standard issue anything. Wait, I think I've seen that symbol somewhere before.
1: The Overseer reached down and felt around the side of the mask where the oddly shaped tag was attached. It was stapled to the side, but with a little bit of effort, she was able to pry it off. Holding it in her hand, she examined it closely. On one side was a faded symbol of an animal, while on the back there was a series of numbers.
20: d one nine four two four eight. hmm. And this animal. It's... it's a bear. I knew I had seen this before.
10: Sorry, I I don't get it.
20: Day, my boy, this is from before the war. This is the corporate logo for Arctos Pharma.
10: That old building up the road from Helvinia?
20: They were big business back in the day. Lots of research into new drugs, and I guess a lot of other things, too. But why on earth does this mole miner have an Arctos Pharma tag on its mask?
1: Hold on, Overseer. I want to check something. Day went over to the other dead mole miners and checked each one. Sure enough, each of them had a similar tag. Some more worn than others, but they all had a similar number on the back. Using his combat knife, Day cut the tags off and collected them before bringing them over to the Overseer.
10: The numbers are similar, all starting with D. No idea what that means, though.
20: Yet another mystery, Day. Right now, we need to get into Vault 79. That's the only thing that matters.
10: Agreed, and we don't know if these mole miners will be back. All right, people, check your ammo and let's get moving. We're already behind schedule. Keep an eye out for more side tunnels and stay sharp.
13: Sure thing, Day. Kinda wish I brought that pet liberator. He could have scouted ahead for us.
18: You know that thing keeps trying to swap my tools, right? He's just playing with you. It means he likes you. Not sure I like the idea of a killer communist robot playing with my stuff. Oh, Radcliffe, that little guy will grow on you. That's what I'm afraid of.
1: They listened to the conversation and just shook his head. It reminded him of the discussions his dad used to have when they would sit by the fire and tell stories of the old days before the war. It all seemed so normal, so mundane, and maybe someday he'd been able to sit back and do the same. But they had a job to do. He had a job to do and first things first, they had a vault full of gold to get into. The group continued their hike north, avoiding falling rocks from the ceiling while keeping a sharp eye out for more mole miners. Outside of the cone of their lights given off by the flashlights and pit boys, the darkness pressed in around them. They could hear the sound of shifting rock and dripping water, and every once in a while, perhaps the sound of shuffling feet or muffled grunts, but the group remained unmolested until they could see a light up ahead.
20: Is that the mother load?
1: Looks like it.
10: Everyone be careful, we don't know how stable things are.
18: Whoa.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that drill is going anywhere anytime soon. The group slowly approached the gigantic machine. It was tilted at a 45 degree angle and sat half in and half out of the vault. The thick concrete wall had been pierced, leaving a large hole, more than enough for them to enter. But Radcliffe had been right. The mother itself had taken its last ride chunks of concrete lay scattered everywhere along with pieces of the drill bits and the machine was smoking from multiple power overloads jen who had worked closely with penelope hornwright reprogramming the drill went over to one of the side panels and opened up the diagnostic terminal just a brief look at the readings was enough
13: power supply is fried engines are dead drills are non-functional penny's gonna be real upset
1: nothing we can do about it now radcliffe check the interior the rest of you this is what we trained for so get ready Radcliffe peered around the large machine into the vault, before jumping down the few feet to the floor below. Day scanned behind them to make sure they weren't being followed while Jen unloaded her pack, pulling out the Chinese stealth armor she'd gotten from her mother. Are you putting that on now? Why not? Day blushed as Jen pulled her Nuka-Cola t-shirt over her head and he turned away, as did everyone else, to give Jen what privacy they could.
18: It's clear, Day. We aren't far from the laser grids. I see a few turrets, but they aren't the bad ones. So we can take care of them pretty easy.
1: All right, then. Let's go. Day turned to the overseer. This is what we've waited for. We're turning back now, huh?
18: Day,
20: this really is going to change everything.
1: The group slowly crawled around the broken motherlode and dropped into Vault 79. To the 76ers, it appeared very similar to Vault 76. The walls were emblazoned with the Vault-Tec logo, as were the various crates and boxes scattered about. Radcliffe was able to use his rifle to take out the few automated turrets in this part of the vault. As the debris hit the floor, everyone kept a lookout for any response. But there was none. Day checked the map of the facility they'd gotten from the old vault University archives and was pleasantly surprised to find they entered the vault almost exactly where they wanted to, below the main levels, bypassing many of the other automated defenses.
20: I'm still amazed at the skill of our engineers. They definitely pulled out all the stops for this one. Besides the security, just look at the quality of this workmanship. I used
18: to think Vault 76 was a work of art, but this is something else. A lot of these resources could have been used elsewhere. Like, maybe another vault for actual people?
10: You aren't wrong, Radcliffe, but this gold is going to help a lot of people.
18: Get Appalachia
10: back on its feet.
18: I hope so. And let's do it right this time, okay?
10: I learned from a lot of people's mistakes, and too many folks have been hurt already. It's gonna be different this time.
13: Hey, I found the laser grids!
1: The group followed Jen down a corridor until they reached a series of doors crisscrossed by red lasers. Anyone attempting to breach them would be instantly cut to pieces, and the terminal to deactivate them was on the other side. Of course, this is where Jen and her Chinese stealth suit came in.
20: Alright folks, wish me luck. Please be careful, Jen.
1: Yeah,
10: just go slow, like we
1: practiced.
13: Easy peasy. Just you watch."
1: The overseer crossed her fingers and said a little prayer as Jen placed the helmet over her head. Once it interfaced with the rest of the stealth suit, she appeared to vanish, leaving only the fuzziest of visual distortion in her wake. Approaching the laser grid, Jen moved slowly and deliberately, passing through the first set of lasers without a problem, then the second, and finally the third. They all let out a collective sigh of relief as Jen removed her helmet, smiled and waved from the control room, before putting in the deactivation codes, turning all the lasers into a friendly blue color that would allow them to pass.
18: Well, that wasn't that hard.
10: Don't jinx us, Radcliffe. Remember, you're next. The turrets. Yeah.
1: Passing through the grids themselves, they found Jen looking over some files next to the terminal. Find something?
20: Day, didn't you and the overseer say this vault was unoccupied? It was supposed to be fully automated until such a time as the proper authorities reclaimed the gold. Well, I don't quite know
13: how to explain this, then.
1: Jen picked up a notebook from the desk and handed it to the Overseer. It was a series of journal entries. It wasn't so much the contents that interested the Overseer as it was the dates. Every single one of them was dated after the Great War, all the way to just a few months ago, when the entries suddenly stopped.
20: None of the plans we saw included a list of residents.
10: None at all.
1: Maybe they were at it after? And what if they're still here?
18: Hey guys, I found the turret controls!
1: The overseer exchanged a worried look with Day. They hadn't accounted for anyone being in the vault, and it could pose significant complications. The others all filed out and found Radcliffe hovering over another terminal. Are you sure the turrets are active?
18: Well, I wouldn't recommend sticking your head around the corner to find out.
1: Day smirked and looked around, before picking up a small toolbox from the floor. He walked over to the corner and tossed the box into the corridor. It was vaporized before even hitting the ground. See, told you so. Just give me a few minutes. While Radcliffe unfolded the set of turret deactivation instructions and started typing commands into the system, Day took the opportunity to look around. Something didn't feel right and he learned a long time ago to trust his intuition.
10: Everyone, keep an eye out for anything unusual. It might not be alone down here.
13: Great, Well, at least I can become invisible if I need to.
10: That doesn't really
1: help the rest of us, does it? (laughs) Day walked down one of the side corridors, looking for anything out of place. Not that he had much, if any, experience with actual vaults. All he knew was what his fathers had told him years ago, and the stories the Overseer had told him since they first met. The whole concept of giant vaults built to allow people to survive the Great War sounded like a great idea, until Day realized just how few people had been saved and how many folks have been left to die on the outside. The old world had been fatally flawed. Why else would a civilization run headfirst into its own destruction? Day reached into a side pouch and pulled out a small, well-worn book. His fathers had given it to him when he had first started to learn to read. It was a very old textbook on American civics, which included the text of the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. At this point, Day had nearly every word memorized, and he couldn't understand where it all went wrong.
10: We're gonna do it better this time. A country of the people, by the people,
1: for the people. Placing the book back in his pack, Day was just about ready to give up and head back when he noticed something, a peculiar looking stain on the floor.
10: That looks like blood. A lot of it.
1: Day walked over and knelt down, putting his hand on the brownish stain. It was bone dry, maybe a couple of months old by his estimation but it also looked like the source of blood had been dragged off, down the corridor, further into the vault.
20: Day, Radcliffe is finished. Come on, my boy, we're almost there.
1: Looking down the hall, Day felt a chill go down his spine, and he tightened his grip on his rifle. I'm coming, Overseer. The rest of the team was gathered in the hallway, with Radcliffe at the lead. You sure it worked? Radcliffe just smiled and stepped out into the hallway.
13: Are you crazy?
1: Radcliffe just stood there. And nothing happened. He even danced a little jig, then turned and took a bow.
18: Does this make me a bank robber?
20: Not yet, but you will be. We are not robbers, nor are we thieves. This gold belongs to the people. Remember that.
18: Hey, we were just
20: kidding around. Yeah, Overseer. It's all in fun. And I'll have a good laugh with all of you when this is over. But this is serious business.
1: Everyone understands that, Overseer. Come on, let's keep moving. As the group descended into the bowels of the vault, they uncovered more signs that something had gone horribly wrong.
18: I got blood!
1: There's blood everywhere. What the hell happened? The Overseer was both horrified and confused. There wasn't supposed to be anyone in the vault, at least not by every plan she'd found in vault University. Worse, by the amount of blood they'd found. People had died here, a lot of them by the looks of it. However, they hadn't found a single body.
17: Oh,
20: God. Jen, what is it? I found someone and
13: they're dead.
1: They all walked over to where Jen was standing. There, behind a leather couch, was a dead woman's body. She was wearing sleek armor with an unfamiliar insignia on the shoulder.
10: Hmm. Been dead for a while. Shot multiple times by the look of it. She didn't go down without a fight, though. Just look at all the shell casings
1: around the body. A 10 mm submachine gun lay nearby, which was probably the weapon the woman was using to defend herself.
20: I recognize that, Patch. That's the United States Secret Service emblem. Secret Service? Don't they just guard the President or something? That was one of their jobs, the one most people recognized anyway. But technically, they were part of the Treasury Department.
18: Treasury? Oh, the gold!
10: The gold. That's all well and good, Overseer, but something bad happened here. If they were supposed to be guarding the gold, why are they dead? More importantly, who killed them?
13: Maybe they killed each other, like, for the gold?
18: Oh, like that old movie about the thieves who killed each other to try to keep all the gold for themselves? Exactly! I mean, I guess, because it sounds
20: right.
1: That's enough. Spread out and check the rest of the rooms. The 76ers and the Foundation members searched the level and found more bodies, all wearing nearly identical sets of armor. They had put up quite the fight, with makeshift barricades erected and doors blocked by crates and large boxes, but appeared to have done little good.
18: I take back everything I said. This wasn't a fight, it was a massacre.
1: Dave finished examining his fourth or fifth body. Most had been killed by high-caliber weapons, probably assault rifles by the looks of the wounds. A few had been bludgeoned to death, their bodies splayed out like they'd been thrown around like ragdolls. The itch between his shoulder blades had become a full-fledged fire alarm. Overseer. The Overseer was standing in the corner, her pistol at her side. She appeared to be deep in thought and hadn't heard what Day said. Overseer! Day walked over and put his arm on the Overseer's shoulders, finally snapping her out of whatever she had been thinking about.
20: What is it, Day? Did you find
10: something else? Overseer. Overseer. This place, it isn't a vault, it's a tomb. You and I both know this isn't right.
20: Doesn't change anything. If Valeria got here first...
10: I don't think this was her. I don't know who, but this just... This isn't quite her style. And her contacts would have said something.
20: Then the gold is still here. Whatever happened to these poor souls, well, isn't our concern.
10: Isn't our concern? That's what I'd expect Valeria to say. Not you. Don't you ever compare me to her. She's a
20: monster.
18: Sorry to interrupt, but I think we found the entrance to the gold storage vault.
1: Day and the overseer exchanged looks before Day sighed and turned to Radcliffe. Anything unusual?
18: Place looked to be locked up tight. Found more blood, but no more bodies. Security system is still online, but I should be able to crack it.
10: All right. Radio Page, let him know we're almost done. Then we can figure out our next steps.
1: Radcliffe looked down and then ran his hand through his close-cropped hair.
18: Well, that's gonna be a problem.
1: And why, exactly?
18: Radios are down. Just getting static up and down the line. Maybe the vault, maybe something else. But as long as we're here, we ain't talking to nobody. Shit. Come on.
20: The sooner we get to the gold, the sooner we can get out of here.
1: Day shook his head, but followed Radcliffe and the Overseer down the hall into a large room. He walked over to the other 76ers and told them to take positions to cover the other hallways. To their front was an enormous vault door. It was easily three or four times the size of the door of Vault 76, and guarding something that, in the Overseer's opinion, was far more valuable to the rebuilding of the country.
20: It took nearly three months to move all the gold from Fort Knox to this vault. It'll take us a lot longer to get it back out again. But... This is the start of a new beginning for all of
10: us. First things first, let's get that door open.
1: Radcliffe? Radcliffe nodded and leaned over the vault control terminal, typing in a series of commands to gain access to the door controls. The clicks of the keyboard seemed unnaturally loud against the silence of the control room.
18: Just about there. Pretty easy, actually. Guess whoever designed the vault didn't think
1: anyone would get this far. As Radcliffe finished up, Day tried his own radio. All he got was static no matter which frequency he tried. Perhaps it was the vault, but everything Day had learned over the decades in the wasteland was telling him that something was terribly wrong here.
18: Got it! There was a loud
1: banging sound as the hydraulic arms engaged, releasing the circular locks on the vault door. For a moment, Day's concerns were forgotten as he watched the gigantic mechanism unwind like a puzzle before the door began to pivot. There was a rush of air, buffeting the onlookers as the door swung open slowly The interior of the gold storage vault was pitch black, and the assembled team peered into the inky blackness to be the first to glimpse the treasures of Appalachia, the glitter of gold that they'd all come to find.
9: Hey, what's that?
1: Through the darkness there was a greenish glow, then another, and another, and then more than they could count. Day heard at first the mechanical whine of a minigun spinning up. the, the light suddenly ignited, revealing dozens of waiting super mutants and an enormous hole in the back of the vault. In the split second before all hell broke loose, Day realized the one thing he didn't see. Every single wreck in the vault was empty. The gold was gone.
6: Human time is done! Now is age of super mutants!
1: As the wind whistled down from the mountain peaks of the Savage Divide, two figures crouched on a rocky outcrop, binoculars trained on the valley below. Looks clear. You sure? That other road looked clear
14: too. Best I got. You see any super
1: mutants down there?
14: Or those big fellas?
16: Behemoths. That's what the Colonel is calling them now. But no, I don't see a thing. And that's what worries me.
14: We need to get out of these hills. We're low on ammo, and if one of these things finds us... Alright, keep watch. I'll go talk to the Colonel. The radio's still out? Same damn interference. Can't get anything beyond maybe a half mile.
1: Shit. You better not die, Better. Cause I will collect those caps you owe me. Bitter just laughed as Sullivan got up and walked back towards their makeshift camp. He gave a quick wave to Sergeant Blaine, who was keeping watch in his power armor, just in case any super mutants stumbled upon them. Past him, in a small clearing. Colonel Valeria was standing over a fire. Her silver eye glinted in the filtered sunlight and her face appeared to be set in stone. Her power armor had given up the ghost a half mile back. The damage from the behemoth had finally caused the servos to freeze up completely, rendering the suit useless. Rather than just abandon it, Sullivan had set up a booby trap with a fusion core and a plasma grenade, a trick he picked up from Lilith. The first person who attempted to mess with the armor would get quite the nasty surprise. Opposite the Colonel, Corporal Samantha was changing the dressing on Graham's wounds. He had been shot several times during the battle, and although he was oblivious to the pain, the Corporal had taken it upon herself to care for the supermutant and keep the wounds clean until his enhanced metabolism healed them. Charlie, his faithful Brahmin, was noisily chewing on grass along the edge of the clearing. Despite the chaos of battle, the creature hadn't been directly targeted and had somehow managed to avoid any serious harm, casually following Graham as they all fled from what had been the Emmet Mountain disposal site. The rest of the clearing was occupied by a half-dozen survivors of Marion Copeland's scavenger crew, and the final four survivors of the new Enclave teams Valeria had led in the relief effort. Sullivan couldn't imagine what might be going on behind the Colonel's stoic expression. After the explosion, which had destroyed the entire disposal site, along with most of the super mutants and any other survivors which hadn't made it out, the Colonel had rounded up those who were left and got them on the road towards the Middle Mountain cabins. They hadn't made it very far when they ran into their first group of super mutants.
16: At least there are no behemoths this time.
1: Sergeant Blaine and the colonel had managed to kill the mutants, but not before another operative was killed and two of the savages were wounded. However, the way back to the rendezvous point was still not clear. Roving bands of supermutants, survivors from Emmet Mountain, were blocking all of the roads back towards the White Spring. Realizing their radios were still being jammed, the colonel tried to lead them around the roadblocks only to find even more supermutants gathering in the hills. It meant west was no longer an option and their small group was forced southeast in an attempt to find either high ground or a safe place to contact the bunker. That's how they ended up where they were, in the hills overlooking the Morningside Bed and Breakfast, trying to find a way down into the valley which would give them a clear path home. The colonel lifted her eyes from the small fire and fixated on Sullivan. Update, Sullivan. Better things were clear, no promises,
16: but it's the best we got.
15: Any sign of whether Jones got through with the civilians?
16: No idea. If they got caught out in the open, Sullivan saw Valeria stiffen for just a second, but if they had enough of a head start, they could have gotten out before the Super blocked the roads.
6: Brothers are sick. Kill humans for no reason. Me wish brothers would listen to Graham. Could be peace, but want only kill.
1: Valeria looked over at Graham. She could tell the Super was being sincere. In the short time she'd known him, Valeria's worldview of the supermunes had undergone a significant change. If only the others had been like him, maybe things could have been different. On the inside, Valeria was struggling to hold herself together. Beyond anything she had experienced, this was a disaster she couldn't fully comprehend. All of her carefully laid plans and actions for the past three years had come unraveled in the space of only a few days. In the past few hours, even, she had lost nearly everything. She had learned hard lessons in the past, and despite her feelings, the weight of responsibility felt squarely on her shoulders. These people were still her responsibility, and Valeri would do whatever it took to get them to safety. At least they still had the white spring and could regroup. Or so she thought.
15: We'll move out in ten minutes. You and Bitter will take point and blank and cover our rear. Graham?
6: Yes, Val Eo
15: I have a feeling you know these hills better than most of us. Once we get down into the valley, can you help find a clear path back to the White Spring?
6: Hmm. Grab new many paths. Use for trade. can help new human friends get home. Home where heart is. That what they say.
15: We would appreciate that, Graham. I haven't had the opportunity to thank you. You saved a lot of lives.
6: Wish could have done more. Brothers not listen. We try. All can do now is run. Maybe things be better elsewhere.
15: Once we get back, we'll need to talk to everyone. This super mutant threat is far, far worse than anything else we've encountered, and I will not make the same mistake of
1: underestimating them. Valeria wished she was even half as confident as she tried to sound. However, they were all looking to her, and for better or for worse, she was in charge. At the appointed time, the group broke camp and made their way down the rocky slope, Veteran and Sullivan in the lead with the rest following. Sergeant Blaine, wielding his minigun and the last operational suit of power armor, kept a close eye on the trail to their rear, in case the super were still looking for them. Graham and Samantha walked side by side, while Charlie, Graham's faithful brahmin, waddled behind, pausing to eat grass or tear leaves from the passing trees, or sometimes both with its two heads. As Valeria walked, she played the last few days over in her mind. There was a pattern to everything which had happened. The radio interference, the supermutants, these new behemoths, coordination between them the likes of which they'd never seen, and the fact that she had been led into a trap.
15: They knew we'd try to relieve Emmett Mountain. Those supermutants were waiting for us.
1: No other explanation made sense, and now with their forces decimated, there might not be any way of stopping them, short of utilizing the silos. She was still deep in thought when they reached the bottom of the valley and exited the forest into a wide grassland, broken only by small clumps of trees. The sun was beginning to set, leaving long shadows across their path. Veteran and Sullivan had stopped and were scanning the sides of the valley for any sign of their pursuers.
6: We remember this place. We follow path, and it take us to Big Road. Road lead to White Spring.
15: How far, Graham?
6: Valio, not far. We reach road before night. Much safer there. Graham camped there many times.
15: Sergeant Blaine, any sign of pursuit?
6: No, ma'am. No sign of hounds or anything.
8: Think we lost them.
16: Looks like clear sailing ahead. Just need to circle
1: around that big junk pile over there. Pile of junk? Where? Sullivan pointed about a hundred yards ahead at what looked like a big pile of scrap. Then it started to move
15: god help us
1: whether the behemoth had been waiting for them specifically or just happened to fall asleep there was immaterial to just how bad things had gotten for the small group of survivors the 30 foot tall beast rose up and roared again spotting the puny humans in the open they all raised their weapons to fire as the behemoth grabbed a huge piece of a steel beam as its weapon readying to throw itself into the fight To their credit, not a single person ran. Even as most saw the hopelessness of their situation, they were prepared to go down fighting. The roar of the beast was cut short by multiple rockets fired from the tree lines on three sides. At least a dozen of them corkscrewed and exploded against the behemoth. The beast tried to roar again, but instead lost its voice as another rocket detonated under its chin, nearly decapitating it. The survivors had thrown themselves to the ground as the last flurry of rockets finished off the large monster, causing it to slam into the dirt, generating a small earthquake. What the hell was that? Beast the shit out of me.
6: Me not do
9: either. Colonel, look!
1: Valeria picked herself up and turned to where the corporal was pointing. Emerging from the trees were mole miners. Not just a few of them, but dozens. Some carried smoking rocket launchers, while others had assault rifles, all pointed at the group. To Valeria, this was the end of the line. These mole miners might have killed that behemoth, but now, outgunned, they would probably kill them as well, and there was nothing she could do about it. Everything that she had done it was all going to end. She tightened her grip on her weapon, waiting for the sound of a rocket that would end her life, when she heard a familiar voice.
10: Colonel! Colonel! Are
1: you okay? Valeria squinted to see a figure running towards her, wearing a mole-miner cloak but without the hood. The face looked familiar, if badly scarred. As the individual got closer, she recognized who it was.
15: Lawson? That's…
1: impossible… he's dead. She briefly wondered if she was also dead and just hadn't noticed to happen. But it was Private Lawson, thought to have died on the scenic overlook. He stopped a dozen or so feet from the colonel and tried to catch his breath.
10: (sighs) Sorry, Colonel. We tried to get here sooner. Private,
15: you're supposed to be dead. And mole miners? What the hell is going on here?
8: It's a real long story, Colonel, but we don't have a lot of time. More super mutants are on the way, and you need to know what's really going on. Everything we thought we knew about Appalachia, the Scorched, the Super Mutants, even that big stupid robot that almost killed
15: me. We were wrong about it all. Give me the two caps version, Private. I promise, I'll explain everything. But more importantly,
8: there's someone you need to meet. He knows a lot more than I do, and he was the one who saved me. We can't stay here, and before you get back to the White Spring, you need to understand the kind of threat we're facing. You see, there's... There's been a war going on, under our feet for nearly 30 years, and the good guys are losing. And if we don't help them, it will be the end of everything.
1: Valeria's head was spinning, but what choice did she have? The Molmeyers and Lawson escorted the group to a small cave on the side of the valley. Just as the sound of mutant hounds could be heard in the distance, the group disappeared into the ground before the cave entrance was collapsed behind them.
18: I'm Chris, and I'm not we're not doing that routine right now. We're trying to do an advertisement. Oh, fine.
8: I'm Sir Aloysius Pernicious, the better half of the team at One Wall Comedy.
18: Okay, I wouldn't go that far. Anyway, come check us out on YouTube. We're your number one source for independent sketch comedy on the Internet. Yeah, because that's such a big market. All right. Come on. Let's get out of here.
6: I'm getting paid for this, right?
18: Don't push your luck.
1: The mire never seemed to end. As far as one could see, it was an endless expanse of forests and swamps filled with the infernal strangler vines, infested with all manner of mutated creatures, only the most foolish, desperate, or outright insane would ever try to navigate through it.
21: So... What does that make me?
1: Red rested against an old tree, her leg throbbing from the pain of limping through knee-deep muck and mud for what seemed like hours. The blinking collar around her neck was chafing something fierce, though she was reluctant to even touch it, lest it remove her head from her shoulders in the most explosive way possible.
21: Let's not die just yet. Okay, Red. The former
1: Tennessee trader and moonshiner had no idea how long she'd been hiking in this godforsaken swampland. All she wanted to do was to get away and start somewhere new, but instead she'd gone from the frying pan into the fire. Anyone else who would have given up long ago died somewhere back along the line. In the back of her mind, Red could see their broken body, killed by those ghouls, or bleeding out at the feet of that raider bitch dagger. Any number of times she ought to have been eaten by the creatures of the mire, but damned if she hadn't survived.
21: Survived the reavers, too. Hell, maybe I got a lucky charm or something.
1: Red smiled, then winced as she tried to keep moving. The track in her hand kept beeping, and that was enough to keep her focused on getting to that damn package that brought her here in the first place. Looking around, Red tried to keep an eye out for whatever manner or creature inhabited this part of the mire, but besides the ever-present sounds of insects and birds, she couldn't see anything else moving. Even the strangler vines, which lay thick along the ground and in the trees and every other part of the swampland, seemed reluctant to encroach here. With each step forward, it felt as though she was intruding on a part of the world that hadn't been seen by anyone for decades. When she saw something glittering up ahead, Red thought she was seeing things.
21: What in tarnation is that?
1: As she got closer, the surrounding swamp lit up with a gleam of sunlight filtering through the canopy of the trees above. Little rainbows seemed to dance along the surface of the water as dragonflies the size of falcons hovered above the water and dipped low to catch glowing radfrogs or small two-headed rodents from their hiding places in decaying stumps or amongst the tall reeds and mutated cattails. None of them seemed to pay Red any mind as she slowly navigated her way forward. The terrain changed from swamp to more marshland with small islands rising above the waterline with clumps of trees. For the first time in almost as long as she could recall, Red looked up and saw the sun in a bright blue Appalachian sky. She let the warm light wash over her face, closed her eyes, and smiled.
21: (laughs) If not for the monsters, fucking raiders, and goddamn vines everywhere, this might not be such a bad place to settle down.
1: The tracker continued to beep, leading Red onto what had been an old road, now nothing more than islands of asphalt leading to nowhere. Her stomach was starting to grumble, and Red realized she probably hadn't eaten much of anything for a while.
12: wonder
21: what those dragonfly thingies taste like.
1: Just as Red was contemplating the nutritional value of the giant insects, she caught a glint of something out of the corner of her eye. What now? Red spun, and when the transmitter was pointed in that direction, she was rewarded with an even louder set of beeps, followed by a single, long tone.
21: Well, I'll be.
1: Grabbing her walking stick, Red half-limped, half-jogged towards a small raised piece of land, surrounded by tall reeds and cattails. The closer she got, the more she could make out something that definitely didn't belong in a swamp.
21: Just what in the Sam hill is that?
1: Red struggled through the mud until she got to the clearing, and the transmitter emitted a final long beep before suddenly going silent. Lifting her boots out of the thick muck, Red parted the long grass and found herself face to face with the wreck of an old vertibird. She'd never seen one, a real one. But her mom and Pa told stories of vertebrates crisscrossing the skies when Johnny Law had tried to crack down on the moonshine business back in the early 2070s. This one had crashed, obviously. The wings had broken off and most of the body was half-sucking into the ground, filling most of the inside with mud. Red gingerly limped around the wreck, trying to find whatever she'd been sent to look for.
21: Can't imagine what's so damn important about a stupid wreck in the middle of nowhere.
1: The co-pilot's door was missing and Red leaned inside. Most of the cockpit was filled with muck, but the bodies of the two pilots, now both yellowish-brown skeletons, were still strapped into their seats. Poor bastards. The pilot's headphones still hung loosely from the top of the cockpit, while smashed pieces of equipment lay scattered around the seats. Red stepped on something hard, and when she reached down, she pulled a 10mm pistol from the mud. It was barely recognizable, covered in layers of rust from the previous decades. That's when she noticed the bullet hole in the co-pilot's skull.
21: Holy hell. Looks like this flight did not go smooth, even before it crashed.
1: Red reached in and looked at the rusted dog tags still hanging around both skeletons' necks. Gently, she removed them, scratching the surface to uncover the names written there.
21: Lieutenant Tolliver. Captain Pendergast. Well, sorry to be disturbing you, but you got something I need. Wish you could still talk and tell me what this is all about, or just where the hell this package is.
1: Gritting her teeth, Red managed to barely squeeze past the dead pilots and back into the cargo section of the vertibird. It was mighty dark and she nearly tripped over another skeleton, this one wearing some kind of armor and all jumbled up, like they had been standing when the crash happened. Didn't end so
21: well for you either, buddy, did it?
1: Most of the rear section of the vertibird was full of mud and water. Lucky for her, there was still just enough room to get purchase and feel around and soon she found something solid. Red pulled and pulled, her muscles aching from the effort but she was finally rewarded when she felt something shift and a metal crate suddenly bobbed to the surface. When she ran her hand over the metal, wiping away the mud, the case still gleamed like it was brand new. Then there was also this soft hum coming from it, and when she turned it around in the water, she found a small fusion core generator on the back.
21: Just what the hell was I sent to find?
1: Red had no idea what she was going to do next, but she had to at least get the crate out into the open so she could get a better look at it. The rear cargo bay door was buried in the earth, and the side door wouldn't budge when Red tried the handle. Examining it a little closer, she saw a handle that was labeled Emergency Release.
21: (laughs) Let's see if we can keep this lucky streak alive. Please work. Please work. Please work.
1: And Red was nearly blown backwards when the explosive bolts discharged, sending the cargo door spinning out and landing 20 feet away, creating a large splash where it hit the water. Red spent a couple of minutes waiting for the ringing in her ears to stop, before sticking her head out to see if she had woken any monsters. When she didn't see any, Red spent nearly twenty minutes finally pushing the large crate out into the vertebrate and back onto dry land. Exhausted, Red took off her hat and wiped her brow. She'd done it. Fuck Vinny, fuck the Reavers, and fuck the Mire. Reaching up, she almost gave the collar around her neck a little tug, but instead extended the middle finger at it.
21: Yeah, look this, too.
1: Red sat down next to the crate and tried to catch her breath. Her legs still hurt, she was hungry, but damned if she hadn't found what she was looking for.
21: Okay, Red, you've come this far. How the hell are we gonna get this here great all the way back to Big Bend?
1: Scratching her head, Red could have kicked herself for not thinking that far ahead. Granted, she'd spend weeks running for her life, but now she needed a plan. Red's ears perked up when she heard the familiar sound of a Brahmin. Not just one by the sound of it, but at least a few. She peeked over the top of the crate and sure enough, a small herd of the pack animals were chewing on the long grass not too far away.
21: I guess my ma and pa are out there looking out for old Red. All right. Maybe I can get this crate open and see what we're dealing with. Then, grab me one of those there, Robin. Would sure beat walking.
1: Red examined the crate and found a recessed keypad.
21: Well, shit. Vinny didn't say nothing about no code. How the hell am I supposed to open this thing?
1: Red figured maybe if she could find a rock or maybe something to pry open the top, she could remove whatever was inside for the trip back. All she had to do was coax one of those brahmin over figure out how to strap the crate on its back, then start heading due south. Sure, it was still better than even chance that she'd managed to get herself into even more trouble on the way back, but giving up now sure didn't seem appealing after all she'd been through.
21: Now what?
1: Red stood up and unslung her rifle. She had that familiar itch between her shoulder blades. The sound of a silenced 10mm was lost above the din of insects and wind whistling through the strangler vines and tree branches. Red felt the impact (coughs) and looked down to see a rapidly expanding stain of blood on her jacket.
21: Oh, shit.
1: Red was shot two more times, one catching her in the shoulder, partially spinning her around, while the other hit her in her side. She tried raising her rifle, but the strength was gone from her legs and she collapsed to the ground, groaning in pain. She heard footsteps approaching, and she managed to turn herself over in the direction of the sound
8: down. Secure the perimeter and check the payload.
1: Through the haze of pain and blurry vision, Red watched as a handful of figures walked out of the trees. They were all wearing dark gray armor and masks, which seemed to blend directly into the shadows. While well, two of them took positions around the old wreckage of the vertebrate, a third went over to the crate, kneeling next to it and pushing numbers into the keypad. The fourth, perhaps the leader of the group, strode over to where Red was lying on the ground. With measured indifference, he looked down at her.
8: You cost me a hundred caps, courier. Bet Gray 7 that you'd never make it this far. But hell, I was wrong. And that was a nice trick you pulled a few weeks back, leading Gray 11 to that monster. (laughs) Didn't see that one coming. (sighs) He was an asshole, though. So can't say that I'm upset.
1: Red pressed her hand against the wound in her side, trying to staunch the flow of blood, hissing in pain.
8: Guess I could just kill you. But what's the fun in that? You don't look like you'll last long anyway. And why waste a bullet when the mire'll do the job for us? Sir, we're all here?
1: The leader turned around, holstering his pistol.
8: Fantastic. Pack the samples and get ready to go. Gray 18. Yes, sir. Help load the samples into the refrigerated packs and then contact command. Let them know we'll be heading back. Prepare a rendezvous at Terminus D. Right
1: away, sir. Red could only watch as the crate was opened and slowly emptied of its contents. She caught sight of glass cylinders, each containing some kind of glowing liquid, which were carefully placed into rigid backpacks. Suddenly, there was a loud whistle from the other perimeter guard, followed by an explosion of gunfire. Contact! The entire clearing was awash in the sound of plasma weapons and automatic rifle fire. Rolling over, groaning at the pain it caused, Red curled up and tried to make herself as small as possible as plasma rounds and bullets passed over her head. She couldn't tell what was going on, only that the people who had shot her were now engaged in heavy combat with someone else. A volley of four rockets corkscrewed from the tree line and impacted on the birdie bird chassis, the explosion scattering debris across the area, knocking the crate on its side, spilling the remaining cylinders into the mud and muck. Red winced as someone ran by her, followed by another explosion and more gunfire. She was bleeding badly and felt so weak. She tried pulling herself along the ground to try to get away from the battle around her.
21: <clears throat> I'm not i am I?
1: Someone was yelling and Red thought she heard the stomping of power armor. Then there was a monstrous roar which rolled over the clearing and then the sound of something large running in her direction. All Red could see were black spots dancing in front of her eyes and she felt so heavy. The sound of blood rushing through her veins was loud in her ears. The thought of dying didn't bother Red that much, figured she'd been on borrowed time for a while. At least the Reavers never got their hands on her. As the blackness rushed in and time seemed to slow, she saw something big and white and then felt herself being picked up and feeling like she was flying. Everything was so far away, the sounds of more roars, explosions, gunfire, and the touch of a hand on her face. Then nothing at all.
4: What the hell was that thing?
8: I have no idea. It certainly wasn't a claw. They don't have fur.
4: Well, it's gone now. What about the others?
8: No idea who they were, but they got away. Think we wounded at least two of them. We found blood trails, but lost them about half a click south of here.
18: We can worry
4: about that later. Did you check the crate?
8: About half the contents were still intact. We've already rigged them with plasma cores as ordered, along with the mini-nuke. Should be more than enough to destroy all of it.
4: But not all of it! Damn! Even one of those cylinders is more dangerous than you could possibly imagine!
8: What are your orders, Nightshin?
4: Activate the charges! We need to head back to meet up with the paladin. She should be almost to the observatory by now, and our cover story won't last much longer.
8: And what about the rest?
4: I need to find a way to contact the elders. Our mission just got a lot more complicated.
1: Several minutes later, the stillness of the mire was broken by the deafening sound of a small tactical nuclear explosion. From its geosynchronous orbit above Appalachia, the Kovac satellite noted the incident and downloaded the data to MODIS. The super mutant attack on Foundation had been a near disaster. Filled with refugees and with most of their defenses facing outwards, they were completely unprepared for the emergence of a mutant horde from below and within. The giant drill that disgorged its cargo of super mutants was gone, disappeared back below the ground as mysteriously as it had appeared, but the damage had been done. This attack had been merely a diversion, as another horde of mutants managed to infiltrate right up to the walls of the settlement, using suiciders to blow enormous holes in the barricades, allowing the super mutants easy access to the interior. Despite a tense moment when their escape was intercepted at the elevator, after Cindy and Amanda explained what had happened, Ward quickly organized a defense. Cindy and Amanda even even click joining him, first preventing the super mutants from escaping the basement, then leading the refugees to safety. For nearly an hour, a pitched battle was fought for every inch of the settlement. Even the Sunny vendorbots joined the fray, defending their stores, each one trying to one-up the other as they had been trying to prove which one of them was the real Sunnybot.
5: There. Is. Only. One. Sunny.
1: Get.
18: Your. Lasers. From. Sunny's.
1: In the end, there was only one Sunnybot left standing, one arm blown off, but still proclaiming itself to be the one and only Sunny, now somewhat more accurately. Cindy and Amanda had fought side by side. Mustering the foundation guards into a coherent defense, and then slowly pushing the super mutants back until finally they had cornered the last of them behind the sawmill.
5: I'd pay good money they just
13: shut up. Let's see how they like a plasma grenade.
1: Cindy pulled the pin on the grenade and tossed it over the sawmill, smiling as she saw it land amongst the super mutants. The bright green explosion was nearly blinding. But when the flash dissipated, all that was left were a half dozen piles of green ooze on the ground.
5: That was amazing, baby doll.
1: Cindy blushed, then squeaked as Amanda picked her up and kissed her, twirling her around. A cheer rose up from the guards and refugees as they celebrated their victory. The celebration was short-lived, however. Dozens of members of the Foundation had been killed, with many more wounded. As the fighting had wound down in the settlement, Duplica was already moving amongst them, offering stimpacks and applying bandages the best that she could.
13: We've got to check on Ward. I think I can still hear fighting downstairs. Let's go see if we can
5: help.
1: Well, Cindy and Amanda grabbed a couple of the guards and went over to the elevator, the sounds of fighting got louder as they reached the bottom, when the whole area was rocked by a series of explosions. When the elevator door opened, the entire floor was filled with smoke and everything was on fire. The group cautiously walked forward, probing through the smoke.
13: Can you see anything?
5: Not really. Wait, do you hear that? Yeah. Is that a... Liberator?
1: Out of the smoke and haze, a Liberator robot swooped up on its spinning legs and landed in Cindy's arms, and then barked at her.
5: Aww! Did that thing just bark at you?
13: It's Jen's pet Liberator! She's going to be so happy to see it's okay.
5: Come on, put that thing down. We need to make sure Ward's okay and those super mutants are dead.
1: Cindy tried to put the bot down, but it must have been terrified because it crawled onto her shoulder and refused to budge. Finally giving up, Cindy left it there and they all continued forward through the smoke. The fighting had been fierce and the bodies of both Foundation members and Supermutants littered the floor of the cavern. The lab spaces were wrecked with terminals smashed and the contents of whatever experiments had been running scattered everywhere.
11: Hey! Over here!
1: The group ran towards the voice and found the survivors of Ward's team. Most of them were wounded, as was Ward. The former raider turned Foundation leader had been shot multiple times, but was still alive.
13: Ward, come on, we need to get you to a doctor.
1: Damn mutants. Blew
14: themselves up in our faces.
13: Ugh. Don't talk. You'll be okay.
14: Is everyone else okay?
13: We stopped them topside.
14: Good. Amanda.
5: Yeah, Ward?
14: I'm putting you in charge. Ugh. Until Paige gets back. Protect my people,
5: Ward. I I don't.
14: From one former raider to another, please. Damn
5: it! All right, Ward, but I ain't keeping track of your fucking osmosis kits. All right?
14: I think they can take care of themselves for a
11: while.
5: Ward, Ward, he's just passed out. Old buzzard. Damn. Damn,
13: damn. Why the hell did I say yes? Because it's the right thing to do, Amanda.
5: I know. Now, let's get these wounded upstairs. The rest of you, see what you can do about these fires. And make sure that someone gets that goddamn hole clear too. I don't care if you have to use dynamite, just close it.
1: The remaining Foundation guards spread out, some of them helping with the wounded, while others went to work salvaging what they could and fighting the fires. Once they got back upstairs, Amanda threw herself into organizing the survivors. Cindy looked around at the carnage and wondered if Foundation would ever be the same. Three years of hard work had been nearly destroyed by the super mutant attack, and worse, the Foundation leadership was nowhere to be found. Paige, Jen, Dr. Hornwright, Day and the Overseer were all gone. Some kind of secret project is all anyone could say.
5: See how many of those turrets still work. Get folks back up on the barricades and watch out for more super mutants.
1: Their radios and Pip-Boys were still being jammed by some unknown source, so they had no idea what was going on elsewhere. Cindy was still determined to get her information to the Colonel, but the current threat had to take precedence. Time passed. One hour, then two, then three. But no one dared relax. This was Appalachia, after all. Finally, one of the guards called from the top of the barricades.
6: got people coming!
5: What now?
1: Amanda climbed the stairs and grabbed a pair of binoculars. Once she got up to the top, she looked in the direction the guard was pointing. There in the distance, a column of what looked like to be more refugees were approaching.
5: Great. Just what we need. Hey, wait a second.
1: Amanda adjusted the binoculars and could just make out one of the people at the front of the group. Eugenie? Watching them get closer, Amanda not only saw Eugenie, but several folks from the Emmet Mountain scavengers and even traders and settlers she recognized from the area.
5: All right, let him in. Who is it? Folks from Emma Mountain and a few others, plus Eugenie of all people. Might have seen a couple of soldiers from that bunker of yours, too. Eugenie? Whitespring folks?
13: Just, what's going on?
1: The two didn't have long to wait as the group slowly filed into Foundation. They all looked worn with wounded amongst them who joined the long line of settlers for medical care. The ghoul merchant, walking with Lieutenant Jones, got into Foundation and was surprised to see Amanda standing there.
5: Amanda what are you doing here what happened a long story eugenie but super mutants attacked us lots of them fought them off by the skin of our teeth what happened to you
7: same but worse they hit Emmett mountain something fierce we held them for a while but
5: but what
7: the came brought a lot of folks from the white spring allowed the rest of us to escape but she stayed behind to cover us
13: Eugenie, what happened to the colonel? Cindy,
5: I just don't know. There was this huge explosion.
1: Eugenie's eyes teared up and she tried to hold herself together, but she couldn't continue. Jones walked up and put his hand on Eugenie's shoulders, then stood in front of her. Lieutenant!
13: Jones, where is the colonel?
1: Eugenie's
19: right. We don't know. She told us to get these civilians to safety and she'd be coming behind. We... Haven't seen any indications yet that anyone survived. The super movements were blocking us so we came here. Doesn't look like you're in much better shape.
5: We're safe for the moment. Ward put me in charge. He's badly wounded and all the other leaders are gone. Dead? Just gone. Went somewhere. Don't know where they went, don't know when they'll be back. So until they do, you're looking at the leader of Foundation. Ain't that some shit? Crap. That's what I said. But, Lieutenant Jones, right? I could use your help. Sounds like this super mutant thing is bad, bad business. Radios are out, so we can't contact anyone. So until we get some help, this is it.
19: Frying pan into the fire, into a fissure site, it feels like.
13: (sighs) Jones, can I talk to you for a minute? Don't keep him too long, baby
5: doll. We got a lot of work to do.
1: Amanda gave Cindy a quick kiss, then went over to Eugenie and put her arm around her, leading the ghoul further into Foundation. What do you need, Cindy?
13: Do you think the Colonel is really dead?
1: You know the Colonel. If there's
19: anyone who could walk through hell and come out the other side, it's her. I'm sure we'll be hearing from her soon.
13: I need to talk to her. Something's wrong.
19: Don't know if you noticed, Cindy, but there's a lot going wrong right now.
13: You don't understand. It's Shadow.
19: Shadow? What's he got to do with anything?
13: He was here. Well, not right here, but in the Divide. He kidnapped somebody.
19: Cindy, are you sure one of those super mutants didn't hit you on the head?
13: I'm serious. He kidnapped a man who was looking for, get this, an astronaut.
19: An astronaut? Wait, Commander Daguerre?
13: Do you know of any other astronauts in Appalachia? That
19: doesn't make any sense.
13: No, it doesn't. That's why I needed to talk to the Colonel. If he's off doing something on his own.
19: He'd never go rogue.
13: Maybe not, but what if he's taking orders from someone else?
19: Who else would be giving orders to Shadow? Wait, you aren't thinking.
13: Like I said, I don't know. That's why I wanted to talk to the Colonel. Cindy, why
19: did we ever leave the vault?
13: Sorry to interrupt,
7: but you're from the White Spring, right?
19: I am. So is Cindy here. Name's Lieutenant Jones. We're a little busy right now, though.
7: Jones, huh? Well, you can call me... Well, whatever you like, actually.
19: Really don't have time for games, whoever you are.
7: I don't play games. I collect information. And sell it. Got something I've been holding on to. Was gonna sell it to these Foundation folks, but didn't quite work out. Figure you might be interested?
19: Lady, we're neck deep in the biggest mess I've ever seen. And trust me, I've seen a lot. What could you possibly have that I'd be interested in hearing?
7: Someone is coming to Appalachia. Quite a few someones, in fact. Loaded for bear by the sounds of it, and planning on setting up shop at the old Atlas Observatory.
19: Sounds pretty far-fetched. Though, with how things are going lately. And who might these people be?
7: They call themselves the Brotherhood of Steel.
14: matrix appears to be stable. FEV variants are consistent with our previous results. It's a shame we were never able to find Site C, Dr. Trillian, but you have done admirably in recreating Dr. Alistair's work.
12: Thank you, Dr. Blackburn. He certainly was well ahead of his time. If only we had been able to intercept him before he entered Vault 76.
14: A loss, for sure. However... The samples we recovered from his daughter's lab were... enlightening.
12: I would have loved the opportunity to examine her in person. The evidence of what that strain could do... It could still allow us to unlock the FEV's full potential.
14: The losses our recovery team suffered were regrettable, and it is likely that Dr. Alistair's daughter was killed during the exchange. That, doctor, is water under the bridge. Operation Keystone has validated Phase 2 of Project Oni. Our enhanced subjects, including the new variants, are stronger, faster, and smarter than even our most generous estimates.
12: Control is still problematic, is it not?
14: Indeed. Our ability to influence these new subjects is still limited. However, We have already laid the groundwork for the introduction of our Phase 3 virus. The subjects' DNA is merely awaiting the right catalyst. Then our friends downstairs will be able to direct them as required.
12: And Beta Team's research?
14: A mere scientific curiosity. I never understood the Director's fascination with Beta's mutagenic monstrosities... The resources diverted into that field of study could have accelerated our own by a significant amount.
22: Dr. Blackburn, we just received an update from Gray Team. The samples have been acquired. That is good news. When will
14: they be returning here?
22: Within the next two days, they are en route to Terminal North. However, there were. complications. The Courier. Gray Nine reported that she had been shot and presumed dead. No. Another faction engaged the team, preventing the recovery of the remainder of the shipment. Another faction? We suspect it may be the remnants calling themselves the Brotherhood of Steel.
14: As long as sufficient samples were obtained, the identity of these interlopers are none of my concern, General. I'm sure the director will have her own opinions on the matter, but Project Oni will render any outside threats powerless against us. And our friend at the Blue Ridge Caravan Company? Mr. Costa. He fulfilled his part of the arrangement. He understands the value of our relationship and should prove useful for the future. Have our agents pay him the agreed-upon amount of gold. Understood.
22: Blue Team has expressed interest in utilizing his services to find and capture subject A724B and return them for examination.
14: That is Beta's prerogative, though I will never understand what value they see in a woman with antlers.
22: And the Deltas? They have caused quite a
14: problem despite our
22: pacification efforts.
14: I suspect that once we have removed any hope of assistance to their cause, They will recognize the error of their ways and return to the fold. That was their purpose, and so shall it be again.
12: I do hope you are right, Doctor. I don't like the idea of having to look over my shoulder whenever I see one of them down here.
14: We are the future. Remember that. Whatever small setbacks we may have had are insignificant compared to what we are about to accomplish. Dr. Trillian. Begin preparations for the viral combination process. I want the samples catalogued and readied for Phase 3 as soon as they arrive.
12: Of course, Dr. Blackburn.
14: I will let the Director know we will be able to proceed to the next phase of Project Oni.
21: Tunnels collapsed in Sector K, and while there's no loss to our staff, we suspect there may be some indications of ultrasite contamination. If the brain cloning facilities are compromised, it would be a disaster.
14: Operation Keystone was reckless, and the damage, both actual and potential, far exceeds what we were told to expect. Our mutagenic subjects would have been a viable alternative. I fear someone is sowing sour grapes. We've been privy to reports from the observation teams, Doctor. More than half of your subjects have been killed during Keystone, and now we've been made aware of the destruction of the entire Emmet Mountain disposal site. That does not constitute success. The losses are merely incidental. And the destruction of Emmet Mountain? A sign of desperation. If our Phase Two subjects are able to force such drastic actions to stop them, just imagine what our Phase 3 subjects will be able to accomplish.
17: I agree with Dr. Blackburn. Operation Keystone appears to validate the faith placed in Alpha Team and Project OnI. It may require more cleanup than anticipated, but beyond testing the ability of our new subjects, it appears that we have also crippled our potential opposition.
14: And the AI? it still remains a significant threat and a roadblock to our control of the silos.
17: Our sources indicate a potential opening for dialogue. How we present ourselves is still a topic of discussion among our peers, but they believe an agreeable solution will be found.
14: Director, I also wanted to report that we have obtained the Miraposa samples and we will begin work on Phase 3 as soon as they arrive.
17: My, my, my. That is excellent news. The Council had expressed concerns about your methods, Doctor. But I did not.
14: We can begin to wind down Operation Keystone. There may be additional collateral damage, but nothing that should affect our work here.
17: Very good. When I brief the Council tonight, I will tell them to begin preparations for Phase 4. We will finally see the culmination of so many generations of effort, and the Pact will take its rightful place as the future of humanity.
14: To the future, Director.
5: Hi, I'm FireRider, and I'm the host of The Pixel People, a podcast dedicated to taking a close look at our favorite characters from our favorite video games, from major characters who define the course of a game's storyline to smaller characters who you might have never noticed. Every week, we go beyond the quest line to examine a particular character's story arc and choices, and discover the real-world parallels and life lessons hidden just below the surface. I hope you'll join us. You can find the Pixel People on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts.
1: Thank you again, members, for joining us here for the Season 2 finale of The Modus Files. If you've enjoyed this content, please subscribe. And better yet, please leave a review to help others find our little enclave. You can also follow us on Twitter at Modus Files, for more information about our podcast, Fallout 76 content, and random musings on the Enclave. I'd also like to thank our cast, Pandora Beatrix as Colonel Valeria Faustina, Lucy Middleton as Amanda, X01 King as Major Andrew Stein, Rear Cheshire as Lieutenant Cindy Connors, Chrissy Williams as Trader Red and Charlie Lead, Austin Rogers as Lieutenant Jones, Jessica Starr as Commander Sophia Daguerre, Mandy Marie B as Duplica and Andrew Stein's mother, Firewriter as Eugenie, Chris Smith from One Wall Comedy as Graham, Dr. William Emerson, Sergeant Blaine, Radcliffe, Knight Shin, The Sunnybot, Foundation Guard, Gray 7, Gray 18, and Gray 23, and The Supermutants. Wendy Novosensky as the Overseer, Ryan Negrin as Day, Tim Young as Sullivan, Mark Hosworth as Dr. Blackburn, Bitter, and Ward, Josh Smith as Gray 9 and Andrew Stein's father, Monty Wildhorn as Sergeant Tyson. Don McCormick as Private Terry. Vitriol Plays as Dr. Trillian and Pauline the Teacher. Kirsten Harrison as Maria Copeland and Director Evelyn Hornwright. Cashel McCorsett as Corporal Samantha and Jen. Henry McNamara as Young Andrew Stein. Aaron McNamara as Dr. Harefield. Eric Gold as Command. Phobos as Beta Lead. Tom Houston as the Brotherhood Knight. Patrick Conway as Captain Robertson. Daniel Hawthorne as Lieutenant Shadow. Rob Cunningham as Private Lawson and the Mole Miners, and Brad Williams as the voice of Modus. As our second season ends, we'd like to thank the entire Fallout community for their support. We could not have done this without them. We would also like to send a special thank you to Tim Young, the unofficial co-creator of The Modus Files. His friendship made all of this possible. It has been both an honor and a privilege to work with the best cast a creator could ask for, From our regulars to the many, many guest voice actors, each and every one of them has played an incredible part of what has made our story great. Stay tuned for our epic third season, where the fate of Appalachia will determine the future of humanity. Lastly, thank you to all of our subscribers and supporters. God bless the Enclave, and God bless America.
0: Members, we look forward to your next visit
3: to our little Enclave.